Welcome to the Force Matters podcast, powered by Motusi. I'm J.D. Romick. And I'm Jonathan Ang. We're here to have disruptive, inclusive, and informative dialogue at the intersection of technology, research, and clinical practice. Our promise to sort through the BS so you don't have to. Our focus is what matters to your musculoskeletal health. Welcome back, Force Matters podcast listeners. We have Nathan Kinstron on the podcast this week for part two of his epic two-part series. If you missed last week's, go ahead and give that a listen. But we're going to dive into a little bit of his thoughts on overhead athletes and return to throwing. And before that, before we get into that, I need your thoughts. So next week, our Force Matters mailbag is what would happen to the world if the physio profession disappeared overnight? So if physical therapists were to not have jobs, to not have a role, what would happen? And that came from an at grumpy physio um, post string that I thought got a lot of really good discussion going and I would love to hear your thoughts. Also, huge announcement, we do have our new Instagram. So at Force Matters Podcast, that's separate from our at Motusi Corp, just keeps things a little bit more separate. So give us a follow over there on at Force Matters Podcast. And that's where I want you to DM us your answer to this week and the future mailbag. You can still email us at forcemattersmailbag at motusi.com, but connect with us on our Instagram. On to our podcast with Nathan Kinstrand. Hey, my uh, iPhone overheated. Apologize there. Oh, oh no. How hot is it there? We're like depressed up here in the Pacific Northwest with no... We are. We're warming up. We're warming up. It's oh, been... Closer to the 80s, I want to say we're probably creeping into the low to mid 80s today. So no way. Uh, oh, that sounds up. glorious. We're getting there next weekend. We we have some like seven high 70, 80 degree weather. So I'm like, ah, I'm so excited. Um, well, Nathan, let me just like backtrack a little bit because uh, John said when he got a call, it like booted him out of the meeting too. So. Um, basically, everything that I was just saying is it's really fun to have a clinic population where you have such young you know, healthy, fun athletes. I mean, healthy is relative to, you know, they have an injury, but the people, the folks that you get in that are maybe someone's mom or someone's grandma that come in with a hip replacement and they're like, I'm allowed to to work out here. I'm allowed to do my PT here. Like I'm not a young athlete, but then they kind of get this spirit of wanting to be healthy and want to, wanting to like kind of fit into the, the clinic setting. Do you experience that too? Yeah, no, it's huge. I mean, the the energy of the clinic definitely feeds uh, the the energy of the individual in front of you. So I'd say both of the spaces that I practice in, I'm super fortunate in that they're, uh, I call them, I, I don't know if this is the right phrase or not to use, but it's kind of an athletic training room vibe inside of a medical setting. And that's cool. Uh, for those that have been in the athletic training room, you know, it's a little bit less rigid and, and, um, uh, structured from a, uh, an energy and flow standpoint. It takes a little bit more personality and a little bit more hustle and bustle and um, volume increases and music gets going and conversations are carrying across. And and so we try to really try, try to create a fun, energetic, engaging environment um, in both offices. And it's been, it's been a blast to see that effect on individuals that yeah, you would, you would categorize as maybe not your, your competitive athlete, but I would argue that uh, I'm, I'm 
fairly consistent in treating every individual as if they're a competitive athlete. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it's fun to see that competition kind of draw back out of those that, you know, maybe haven't done it in 20 or 30 years or 40 years or whatever it may be. But, uh, hey, in high school, I was a pretty good running back. And and uh, I think I might be able to get into those ladders <laughs> a little bit. And, and uh, I love it. So, yeah, folks compete against each other. It's uh, it's an environment that drives individuals to uh, want to continue the process. I mean, as most folks know, working in the physical ther- therapy setting, PT can be laborious and it can be long and it can be arduous and and uh, it can be something that is really boring and not fun to do if you let it be, uh, or it can be fun and engaging and and motivating and um, cleansing and and really really add value to an individual's day and, and their journey and trying to recover their health. I love that. I love that because I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of us in the profession, you know, want to get to that type of place where you and your colleagues are at, at mankind. Right. And for those of us who have experienced it is, you know, you, you kind of get it and you're psyched. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit in your history to the days where you were kind of grinding, right? You kind of talked about where you were trying to figure out that blending of things. And, you know, for, uh, for our profession, sometimes grinding kind of gets a bad rap, right? But there's, you know, there's clinicians that have been grinding for 30 years and still happy as a clam. And I just kind of, I wanted to get your, you know, your thoughts and I guess your learnings of, you know, kind of what, what, what was it that you took away from those times that, um, you know, that you found valuable, you know, how, you know, kind of what from those times helped you get to where you are now so that, you know, people can kind of gain some insight from that. Yeah, I think, I think the, the early days of, you know, carrying water bottles and sweating in a hundred degree weather and sitting outside on turf fields that your feet are cooking on, um, it just gives you perspective. And I think perspective is oftentimes what allows you to make things either half empty or half full down the road. And when you have perspective of what really is hard and challenging, it makes a lot of other things that at times to some may feel hard and challenging, not feel all that difficult. Um, and so I think the, the grind, especially early on, sets you up to have a perspective of your day and your week. Um, that allows you to continue to push and 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 not feel fatigued because you've done X, Y, and Z. Um, but I think more importantly than that of just setting a, a perspective is, for me, work isn't work. And I, I have people all the time ask me, you know, what do you do for fun? What are your hobbies? And I, I enjoy golfing and I enjoy slope softball. And I've got two little guys and a wife and, and uh, my wife, Kelly, is fantastic and we spend uh, so much time with our boys working on you know, everything that it is of growing up. I've got a two and a half year old and a one year old. And my two and a half year old likes to play catch in the hallway and my one year old's couch surfing and, and uh, they're at the lake. So I'm going to try to head over there after this and, and pop in and spend some time with them at the lake today. And um, it, it's, it's not work to be at work. Um, and I think that's important. Uh, my hobby at this point in time, I would say, is my family and, and my job. And my job is is not a job to me. Um, I enjoy the work that I do thoroughly. It gives me happiness to help others. And uh, I think because of that, it doesn't feel like a grind. Even on the long weeks, even on the long days, it's not hard to be at work. 
And I think that's because I've found settings and people that I enjoy working with, which I think is really important is to find your place. Um, I think physical therapy for me is a happy place, but physical therapy with the right people and the right clinics uh, is on top of that makes it even better. And I'm super fortunate that, you know, throughout the week, I, I can't say that I look at any, any morning and say, gosh, I really wish I didn't have to go there. I really wish I didn't have to, to, to go into work today. Um, I enjoy my work. And I think that makes it easy to go in, uh, you know, finding balance between work and family is, is, uh, kind of this next chapter for me. Um, there was a lot of hours spent to help grow the businesses and, and, build out the practices and create systems and so forth. And now I'm starting to create more balance. And it's been, it's been really nice to find a little bit more of a rhythm in my week. And so, uh, yeah, I think one, find what makes you happy and it won't ever be work. And two, create perspective, spend some time going through the mud and the grime and, and the tough days and long hours so that you can look back and see, uh, you know what, this 10 hour day is not that bad because I've done 12 or whatever it was. Um, it just makes you feel a little bit more, uh, happy with what your, your current situation is. If you've gone through some tough, some tough times in the past. Would you agree or disagree with the statement that seeing patient after patient, you know, for a few years, it's just makes you that much better of a clinician. Um, I think, seeing a volume of patients is highly impactful into your clinical growth. Um, I know high volume practices, practices that are seeing three or four patients an hour get a lot of flack as to, you know, hey, is, is that quality care if you're seeing too many patients per hour and so forth? Um, as much as, you know, I, I prefer more time with patients personally, I don't think that all of the experience in those clinics is for not. I think that Practices where you see a high volume of patients are a super incredible opportunity to see a high volume of presentations and really start to hone in on clinical presentations and pattern recognition. I think without seeing a high volume of patients, you just have less exposures and less opportunity to learn. Obviously, making sure you have time to learn and time to reflect on patients and uh, your effectiveness of your techniques and so forth is very important. Um, I think making sure that you also see enough people and enough variance in your programming is, is very important as well. I had a, a recommendation from a uh, uh, head physical therapist uh, in Indianapolis when I was there. I asked him, I said, hey, you know, there's a rotation as part of USC's curriculum and programming with the uh, Indiana Pacers. You know, do you think that would be a good rotation to go on? I was very much so, hey, I'm in a team sports environment coming out of athletic training. This is all that I want to do is work for a team. And he said, frankly, no, not because I don't think that they have incredible systems and treatment approaches and uh, that they're at the forefront of what they're doing in their population, but you're going to see 15 guys or however many's on an NBA roster. And you're going to see three to four to five of them pretty consistently. And you're going to do that for four months. And that's what you're going to get for four months <laughs> versus if you head into an outpatient orthopedic clinic and you see, 60 patients in a week or 70 patients in a week, but you see 50 different presentations, your opportunity to grow is just so much, so much more. Uh, so I think so much of, uh, so much interest in 
practitioners that are coming out of school is specialization, specialization, specialization. I think it's it's important to remember that uh, becoming a really, really good generalist first isn't a bad idea. Um, it might might just help you become an even better specialist when you're ready to go that route. Uh, so don't be afraid of learning a wide spectrum before you start to uh, dive into what your your passion and your love is, because I think it gives you so many more opportunities to help those in that specialized population that you wouldn't have if you didn't have all those other experiences. I can agree with that more, honestly. Great insight. And I think when you see so many athletes in a specific niche, you get really, you can get really good at treating certain things. And uh, I do want to dive into like one last topic of, you know, throwing athletes and overhead athletes and return to sport, because I do think that's a tricky topic, but I think you're right. Like the amount of people, the amount of athletes, most PTs see, it's such a small part of your caseload. And if you can develop these amazing differential skills, you can understand how presentations have come in before you can save people's lives if you catch something um like i caught a pvc or someone had a st segment uh depression on an ekg and they kept telling her it was just her shoulder pain and she would have this pain when she was just sitting still so being able to find and like problem solve these things doesn't come from just working with a small elite group it really comes from um, diversifying your population. I really love that. We interrupt this podcast for a word from our sponsor, Motusi Corporation. Motusi just launched their brand new lab kit for in-lab and clinical settings. The lab kit with strap-on sensors provides the most versatility to use across multiple patients where you can quickly and easily assess patients at each session to set baseline measurements and track progress. PTs need a gold standard tool to make sure that their patients are getting the care that they need and getting back to doing the things that they love. Check us out at motusi.com. Now, enjoy the podcast. So, John, do you have any other questions on the clinic side? Because I, I don't want to no, take I too much of Nathan's time. I think but... it's a perfect segue into, uh, uh, you know, talking about maybe uh, the residencies and overhead athletes and, uh, and and that place. So take it away, JD. Yeah, and some of, like, the research you've done. Um, so you've published some papers, you know, around youth sports. And I just want to give, I guess, give you time to talk about how do you approach return to sport for overhead athletes because it is such a tricky topic. It's like there's no really good outcome measures for overhead athletes that um, are go-tos every single time. It's such a complex joint. Uh, tell us some of the stuff that you've learned and any golden nuggets of wisdom you can share with PTs. Sure. Um, I think in regards to, so just to touch on residency, here's my, my pitch for residency. Um, I'm, I went through an orthopedic residency at USC. I had a fantastic experience. It helped me significantly. And I have folks regularly, students that come into the office on the clinical rotations ask me, you know, should I go through a residency or should I, should I go through you know, some continuing education model that's maybe not a structured residency program, but may give me some structure and guidance and continued growth and so forth. Um, my bias is I went to residency, so I think it's fantastic and I highly recommend it. My second 
little tidbit on that is you have to pick what you feel like is right for you. And every individual is in different, a different circumstance, whether it's age or uh, position in life. Are you married? Do you have children? Are you uh, supporting yourself financially? Are you taking out loans? Did someone help you in school? And there's so many different variables that affect the decision to do a residency. Understanding that you're going to work a little bit more and get paid a little bit less generally across the board in, in residency programming, it's uh, a tough decision for a lot of folks. You finish up three years and three expensive years of school and to go one more year of, man, I'm tired, I'm burnt out, but I'm going to do one more um, is, is a tough decision. For me, it was fantastic. It gave me a ton of insight into how I learn best and gave me an opportunity to really try to hone in on thinking about my thinking and reflecting on how I process information. Um, I think that that for me was the biggest impact of residency is it gave me an opportunity to reflect on my clinical practice more effectively, which I think has accelerated my growth, you know, from that point forward. Um, that being said, I think there are some phenomenal uh, structured continuing education courses and, and programs. Um, there's a, a course here in Orange County that is a weekend seminar series. There's one in LA that's a weekend seminar series where you can go to, through different body and structure and regions piece by piece and uh, continue to grow and learn and still sit for your, your OCS and become board certified and a specialist in, in your area. Um, so I, I think that that's a phenomenal route to go. I think what, what I uh, recommend folks is look at yourself and determine how well you think you're going to continue to grow if you're self-motivated versus if you're externally mo motivated by some structure, uh, whether it's a residency structure, con ed course structure, or whatever the case may be. If you're someone who loves information and takes their extra time on the weekend to sit down and explore topics and read and research articles, maybe you don't need to. You know, would it benefit you still to go through those structures? Potentially. Um, but if your self if your self exploration is is advanced and you're really highly motivated to continue to grow on your own, you may not need to be that person, and that's okay. Um, I think it's identifying the best structure that will allow you to continue to grow, uh, and that's that's usually my recommendation, which is a great non-answer. <laughs> I think it's helpful though because you're right. I think it really depends on the person, but um, even our PT program, like it wasn't like it was like preached very uh, very much to do one but we did have a really evidence-based program and everybody harped on research and reading and and doing that but we still had people that did go to residencies and loved it and have amazing um, amazing opportunities one did a fellowship um, and is now with the Olympic team and she's a former ATC as well and is in Colorado at their training facility and it it just I think if it fits your story, then I think it's a good idea. Yeah, but that's I great. In, I think it's great insight. Yeah. Um, as far as the return to sports programming, you're right. There's a there's a myriad of different opportunities to make decisions on progression of return to sport in the overhead athlete. Uh, I think the very basic principles that I stick to are, um, again, basic principles: full range of motion and full strength of the affected area, and then taking a look at the rest of the system to make sure the rest of the system is operating in, in an efficient manner. So if it's an elbow rehab, that's great. The elbow has full range, active, passive, resistance testing in, in you know, forearm pronation, supination, wrist flexion, extension, radiolar deviation, elbow flexion, extension, all great and wonderful, equal to the opposite side or better. Um, I, I'm 
try to get past the 90%, you know, Hey, you're 90% there. You're okay to return to sport. If we can get equal, that's the goal. Um, and then if it's dominant arm side, 110%, if we really want to write, like, let's yeah. push this, uh, especially pre-competition, maybe not in the early phases of the progression of return to throwing and hitting and so forth. But, um, if we can get back to 110% as strong, that's, that's ideal. Uh, as far as metrics go beyond that, um, I've been using, using graded return to throwing programs that I've established in conjunction with other providers. Um, some time I spent with the angels and some time I spent with the Padres in collaboration with a, a good friend, Justin Hostert, who's at UCI with their athletics program was at Cal State Fullerton for quite a while uh, and picking his brain of his time with the Padres and, uh, really just trying to get as much information from as many people as possible, uh, using the structured programs that come from physicians like Dr. Elitraj and Dr. Shepard in the area who are, uh, renowned shoulder and elbow, uh, uh, surgeons in the area who have themselves learned from, you know, a number of different individuals to help create their own programs. And then from that structure, trying to tailor and individualize programs to the individual athlete in front of me. Um, I wouldn't say that I ever give a program to a kid and say, hey, I'll see you four weeks later. I'll see you six weeks later. It's generally a weekly uh, or daily, if not every other day text of, hey, how'd yesterday go to, you know, what's your soreness like today? Vanderbilt University does a great job with their return to throwing program and adding special specifications and modifying the program based off of level of soreness and so forth. Um, I try to do that in a in a very interactive way with my clients, which is um, fortunate that I, I I get to do that with a lot of folks. But I think that individualized um, progression or regression based off the response to the day the day prior is probably as specific as we can get. Um, the individual giving you accurate information and making sure you're asking good questions is highly important. And so having a relationship with the client in front of you that allows them to give you, Hey, you know what? No, I am sore. Let's, let's back it off 15% today or whatever it may be is very important. And knowing who you're working with is, <laughs> is part of that. Are they someone who's going to push and not tell you, or are they someone who's uh, going to give you enough information? Um, so, you know, boils down like every good relationship to communication and making sure that the programming is tailored to response to activity, not projected response to activity. Um, not one program that I've written for return to sport has gone linearly. Not one program that I've written for return to sport has gone the way that I wrote it on day one. Uh, every single one of them has been modified along the way. And I think that the better job we do of those modifications, the better job we have, or the better likely we have, likely like likelihood we have of uh, getting an individual back to sport without too many speed bumps. Um, you control every variable that you can. If they decide to sleep four hours a night before, that's hard to control. Um, but if they're if they're uh, giving you information that hey, yeah, I was out late and uh, we had McDonald's yesterday for lunch you know, maybe their body's not going to be in the best position today to push it to a new PR on that return to whatever is swinging or throwing or whatever the case may be. Um, rate of perceived exertion is a very simple scale I use regularly to help make determinations on progression and regression. Uh, level of soreness, I expect soreness to reduce within 24 hours, um, halfway through the next day. If it's more than that, then we try to bring workload down in one variable or another. If we're not sore whatsoever, we progress. And uh, 
I would say that as much as I've tried to use different structures and metrics and systems to create these return to sport programs, um, the best one I've created is the one I come up with day by day in response to the athlete's progression the day before. And that's, I, love I think, I, I love this too. Keep going, John. Sorry. Well, I wanted to, there's two questions I had like kind of specific ones. One is, is so, you know, it's, it's very reminiscent of like, you know, how you like tell patients about like tendinopathies, right? And you know how you, it's like your next step is your reflection on yesterday, right? And so what do you do today, right? And so I guess my question for you on that is like how how do you approach the messaging of that for your athletes um, as you're before you even begin this, right? Because that can, it can be a really frustrating process for for athletes, right? Because like you said, nobody's the same, and and so. Um, you know, how do you set that table for them? Uh, and I forgot the second question. So, <laughs> um, I, for, for the young ones, I try to scare them a little bit. I'll be very honest. I learned from an orthopedic surgeon very, very early on my first rotation in residency. Uh, the, the young ones are going to overstep the boundaries more often. Um, and so I, I, if they're post-operative, I give them, I give them a very clear message. We've got one chance to do this well. The second surgery is always worse uh, as much as we want it to be better. Um, if we butcher the first surgery, chances are you're never going to get back to being where you want to be. Um, response to a recovery to return to sport at, at prior competition level after the first surgery is not 100%. After the second surgery, it's not better than it is after the first. And I think that's been clearly, clearly shown across a number of research articles um, relative to ACL injuries and UCL injuries. And uh, I, I think it's a hard point to argue with when the person's looking at you in front of you going, okay, <laughs> I, I get it. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm just very honest. And, hey, I will, I will be as big a part or as little part of this as you want. Um, if you want to do this well, we have to do it together. And the decisions that we make from a day-to-day -day progression or regression have to be a collaboration across the two of us. Um, if I don't hear from you for six weeks or three weeks or a week, chances are it's not going to go that smooth unless you're highly in tune with your body. Usually that's some of the elite, elite pros and they are pretty good at, at Hey, I've, I've been through rehab, you know, X amount of times before, and now I'm seeing you and I've got a pretty good feel for what I'm doing, but I need your guidance on this, that, and the other. Um, but for the vast majority, it's a conversation about just being open and honest and uh, letting them know that the less speed bumps we have, the faster your return is. You don't want to be here. I don't want you here anymore. Um, I like you, but you can stop by and say hi sometime and, and let's try to get you out of here as quick as we can. Um, rehab's not a fun process for the athlete that's not on the field. And uh, we've, we've seen time and time again the effects of um, rehab on the psychology of an athlete. So giving them this little bit of an edge of, okay, uh, this is almost a competition against myself as to see how quickly I can get back and how well I can follow these instructions, but also help create these instructions by giving uh, good feedback and collaborating on how my body's doing in response to, you know, different days. I love that insight. Thank you very much. I, I, I love it. It's the scare the poop out of a method. Get it, get their yeah. attention. You have to with young men, high school boys, college boys. I mean, yeah. it, Oh, come on. Same thing with girls. Don't, don't say yeah. 
It is yeah. not the same thing with girls. I, I mean, I will say there are girls that do try to push it. The ones that have a higher pain threshold that are like really want to get back for their team. Like they have this like higher level of thinking that like, even if I'm a little bit injured, I'm still better to my team than if I'm not on the field. Whereas I feel like boys, I've had the experience that they all do stupid things. <laughs> like they, they're more likely to push it doing something else than yeah. like sacrificing for their team. Yeah. I don't know. It's just a different. Well, that's curious. So Nathan, do yeah. you use the same strategy with, with a young female versus a, a adolescent male too? Or what, what have you found? So, very similar to, I treat everybody like an elite athlete relative to pushing their, their level of tolerance to, to stress. I treat every single person as a knucklehead. I, I expect every single person to, until they prove otherwise, get in their own way. Um, and so I try to beat, I try to beat a dead horse every time with no matter who it is. Uh, if they acknowledge it and I feel like they're genuine in their acknowledgement, I'll do it less often. But I generally do it pretty consistently, especially for the first oh, four, six, eight weeks. Um, I just had a conversation with a, with a guy who is a partial UCL uh partial ucl tear uh small tear and is conservatively managing his elbow who's demonstrated a couple of uh overstepping the boundaries with different activities and uh i went on a list of hey yeah these are some things that uh you know other people have done uh body surfing surfing uh handstands on the beach and he goes oh i can't do that <laughs> and i said no you can't do that um as much as I would love to say, yes, go enjoy, have fun at the beach, but handstands on the beach aren't going to be great for your elbow right now. Um, and so yeah, I, I try to get as creative in my list as possible. And it's surprising how often somebody goes, oh, wait, I can't do that. <laughs> um, like Not I said, the weather, the weather here is getting nice. So there's more and more beach adventures for everybody. And uh, so now my list includes more beach activities. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, I do want to be mindful of your time. The last kind of question I think we have for you today is, you know, what are you learning lately? And it can be anything from PT to life to anything. Um, what are you learning? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say the, uh, the biggest thing I'm learning is how to integrate technology better into my practice. Um, I'm a very traditional, relatively, I would say, old school individual manual heavy in my approach, corrective exercise focused in biomechanically inclined and in how I break down movement patterns and um, try to treat with a, an old school approach of patients do better if you put your hands on them just from a physical touch standpoint, they tend to respond well. And the fact that they feel like there was something that, that trans, transcribed there from a, a manual therapy standpoint without overutilizing that and creating, um, you know, the continued need for those types of treatment interventions uh a very um, strength and conditioning focused approach to tr uh, exercise progression using rpe and progressive overload principles and trying to explain set and rep comb combinations to athletes so that they understand why we're doing 12 reps versus eight reps versus whatever the case may be um, but trying to take technology and learn more about how to put metrics on how the body is moving as a way to help expedite my objective measurements. Um, so here's my pitch for Motusi. I think it's a fantastic tool. Um, you should consider using it in your practice to help get additional information objectively on um, 
on, on what your individual is doing in front of you. As much as we try to explain to, to clients what is happening when their body's moving, the relationship or the, that perception of what you're saying heavily, heavily, heavily relies on the relationship that you have. And so much of your objective testing in the first visit may go in one ear and out the other unless they can see themselves on a screen and visualize what you're saying, uh, which I think has been a huge advantage and, and something that I think more and more often I'm, I'm trying to incorporate into my regular practice so that uh, we can hammer home some of the finer details and then also see things that my eyes are missing um, of, oh, I missed that or oh, I missed this. And you know, I really thought I saw X, Y, and Z, but actually, no, it looks really good. Uh, and so kind of validating what my eyes are seeing using technology has been great. Uh, we've got a, a few pieces of technology that we're, we're implementing implementing in our practice, and uh, it's been a huge adjunct in improving the efficiency of our practice, as well as the accuracy in what we're seeing and how we're evaluating folks. And um, I think the more tech that you can involve in your regular practice to help improve efficiency, but also accuracy in, in uh, data collection, as well as interpretation, uh, the better. How are, how are your patients responding to to that incorporation of technology? Uh, it's been great. Uh, the feedback from individuals very oftentimes is, oh, man, it's so nice to see that. And that phrase of it's so nice to see that has hit home so many points that I feel like we can talk circles around visit after visit until somebody sees it. I've got an individual I saw yesterday morning uh, who saw their foot pronate during a single imbalance task and said, oh, that's what you mean by, by, by turn your knee out, or that's what you mean by my foot is collapsing, or that's what you mean by, okay, now I see it. And that's as simple as using a, um, a camera system of whatever camera system you want to use. But I think the more information that you can give them, the better take home they get in regards to, oh, that's what they mean when they're saying X, Y, and Z, I think verbal communication gets lost so often. We feel like we're simplifying things and explaining things well, but you know, maybe 10% of that is getting across and maybe it's more for certain individuals, but the more that people can see, I think the better off we are in, in uh, creating an understanding of what's going on in their body. That's actually a really great point. I even film my patients doing their exercises now because pictures and printouts like they'd come back and demonstrate for me <laughs> and the things they do I'm like this is it's funny because you think you're explaining things so well but until they really see their own body it's like they can't integrate their own kind of like internal cue with what they see in front of them so that's that's great and you know we didn't ask you to plug you're really kind to do that but we're really hoping to get better to be able to empower PTs um, we want to make it usable. We want to make it valuable for patients too. So, you know, our goal is to make this, you know, easy to integrate for PTs because we are movement experts. We need to be leading the charge of integrating tech. And if we don't, someone else is going to, and then they're going to try to replace us. And that's not going to go well because just like you outlined return to throwing, getting back into sport, it's not easy. Like it's not just a, you follow this, you get this answer, you're good to go. And everybody just wants that. But there's so much problem solving that goes in with recovery, you know, managing sleep, managing nutrition, like you're doing it all. So it sounds uh, like you have a good multifaceted approach. So thank you for sharing all that. Like you have so much wisdom. We might have to split this into a part one, part two with kind of like your clinic focus and then return to throwing focus. Um, but we'd love to, of course, have you on 
any time to share some wisdom. You've got so much to share and we just really appreciate your time. Uh oh, this phone might be overheating again. He overheated again. Oh no. <laughs> Californians. I'm like jealous. I'm like, I wish my phone would overheat, but instead we're getting snow and hail in the middle you need of to put it in a ziploc so it doesn't get April. waterlogged, right? So you are amazing. I'm sure your phone is overheating. No but I just wanted to, you know, I don't know how much of that you heard, but thank you for sharing so much wisdom with us. Um We'll probably have you on again to talk about whatever other topics that you're diving into, but thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Hey guys, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Appreciate you. Thanks, Thanks Nathan. Take care. Take care, guys. You've been listening to the Force Matters podcast. We appreciate you tuning in and really want to hear from you. If you have questions you'd like to hear answered on the podcast, you can find us at motusi.com on our blog page or DM us on Instagram at motusicorp. See you next time. And until then, keep moving.